Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Well, the premiers and the prime minister met in Vancouver over how to achieve reduction of carbon emissions in the interest of battling climate change. Battling is the word, climate change. And uh, the possible establishment of a national carbon tax, as well as discussion about cap and trade. They, uh, as has previously happened, not only, well, with this prime minister, it's the first time they've met on this, but has happened with previous prime ministers, they hit the pause button. They'll get together again in a few months' time. And we'll see what happens then. But how well does cap-and-trade work? We're going to hear Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, international economist, environmentalist, founder of the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank, and the author of The Skeptical Environmentalist. Dr. Lomborg, in Paris in November of last year for the uh, COP21 conference of the United Nations, uh, was reporting to 25 newspapers around the world And he was on the air with us several times. He's not a fan of cap-and-trade. He absolutely believes in human-induced global warming. But he does not believe that what the United Nations has in place for its climate plan is going to do any good at all. It it will almost not be measurable, and trillions of dollars are going to be spent, what Dr. Lomborg has said to us in the past. So last weekend, and uh, those of you in Alberta probably did not hear the interview. I want to play it back for everyone. Some of you will hear it for the first time. I asked Dr. Lomborg specifically to get into the issue of cap-and-trade, and we fit in the fact that Ontario is bringing it in, and Quebec already has it. Have a listen. So governments in Canada and elsewhere are committing to cutting carbon emission growth. They're engaging in cap-and-trade schemes, in carbon tax schemes. I, I use the word scheme advisedly, I think. You've written that such a commitment is also a promise to economic, uh, cutting economic growth. Could you explain just the fundamentals of that to us, please? Well, uh, I think a number of things is important to recognize that uh, CO2 is a problem. And so any economist would say uh, it's a good idea to tax it at its cost. But you have to be realistic. Cutting CO2, because it's the lifeline of pretty much everything that powers our society, also has a cost. You know, if you make all the cheap energy more costly, you also increase all the inputs that go into the economy. And so you have to cut enough that you're actually respecting the fact that it's a problem, but not so much that you end up destroying the economy. So you need to find what's the right level. And right now, the biggest survey uh, shows that you should probably tax uh, CO2 at about $5 a ton, or that's the equivalent of about one or two cents uh, per liter of gasoline. So it's a tiny bit, but not very much. Europe has had a cap-and-trade market for years now, has it not? Those 10 years? Yes. And I think there's two things to be learned from that. One is that it's often open to a lot more corruption than a straight carbon tax, simply because if you have licenses to pollute, you basically hand it out to all your friends. A lot of governments will have less interest in actually discovering whether uh, the the carbon uh, licenses were 
real. Uh, and so you'll end up grandfathering a lot of the, uh, of the permits so you don't actually get the tax benefits. But crucially, and perhaps most importantly, if you do a carbon tax or a cap and trade, you should stop all other subsidies. And that's exactly what Europe has not done. If you have already put in place a carbon tax, you should not be supporting solar and wind because what's happening, for instance, in Europe, when you put up a wind turbine, because you've already capped the system, it does not cut one single gram of CO2. It simply makes it cheaper for other nations to emit more coal power uh, CO2. So the reality is, once you do a cap and trade, you need to stop all other subsidies. And of course, no government actually does that. And that's the real flaw in most of these systems. When you talk about subsidies, is it not true that at least some governments, maybe maybe most of them that have put uh, cap and trade in place, have in fact provided subsidies to industries that arguably would be the greatest emitters, and they provide the subsidies because if they don't, and if they tax these, these uh, huge companies at the rate that they said they would when the whole plan began, the companies would probably, at least some of them, would just pick up and leave. Exactly. And so what you saw, at least in the first five or seven years of the uh, European cap-and-trade, uh, was that you were actually just generating huge windfalls uh, to the most polluting industries. Uh, and that's, of course, probably not what you wanted. It's still economically efficient, but it's distributionally insane. You told me on air, if I remember correctly, that the uh, EU 2020 policy on global warming will cost $250 billion per year and accomplish dropping temperature by one twentieth of a degree by the end of the century. And you wrote as well, if I'm quoting you correctly, after we spend about $20 trillion over the century, we will have done something you can't even measure. So then the next question, I suppose, is where's the return on investment? Well, it's typically very, very small. And this, of course, is when why we need to be critical of the typical climate policies. A lot of people say, oh, there's a problem, which is true. And then they say, we need to do something, even if that something is a terribly inefficient way to help. And that's why you come up with these cap and tra uh, trade systems and at the same time subsidize solar and wind, and then basically end up having your solar and your wind cutting no CO2 whatsoever. That's just silly. But moreover, as you just pointed out, you end up spending billions and likely trillions of dollars over the century and yet have almost no impact on temperature 100 years from now. That is not the way to help the future. If you want to help the future, you should make sure that green energy becomes so cheap everyone will want to buy it, including, of course, the Chinese and the Indians, who are the real ones who are going to de determine how much CO2 we put out over this century. What happens to the cost of consumer goods in the long run if you have cap-and-trade schemes, or the one like the U.K. has, that after you spoke to me uh, when you were in Paris, I went and did some research. And frankly, I was horrified to read thousands of British seniors are dying because, at least in part, they can't afford their electricity costs, and that at least is in part because so much money and so much taxation has been directed toward renewables. Exactly. I mean, prices go up in general, but especially... Uh, energy costs go up, and they're very regressive, so they hit the poorest the most. Uh, uh, Britain was very, very proud that, for instance, over the last uh, 10 years, they've seen a decline in, in electricity consumption of about 15%. 
But yeah, that's not a big surprise when you increase prices by more than 50%. But crucially, what they found was that the richest people just kept on using just as much because it doesn't affect them very much if you increase the cost by 50%. It's still a small fraction of their income. But for the poorest, and as you mentioned, for instance, pensioners, uh, you have about a third of all pensioners in, in, in Britain that only heat part of their apartments uh, through the winter, simply because they cannot afford to. Uh, about half a million stay in bed longer than they want to because they're, they don't want to get up because it's too cold. That's a terrible outcome. Yeah. Dr. Lomborg, you... You've said, uh, and, and go green is the motto, but, but you've said it can be done much more cheaply than we've just been talking about. And you worked out those cost-benefit plan numbers at the Copenhagen Consensus Center. What are the numbers? What, what, needs, what can be done? What needs to be done? So fundamentally, the, the typical scenarios where you subsidize solar and wind, uh, you end up uh, avoiding a couple of sets of climate damage for every dollar you spend. If you do a reasonably well-constructed cap-and-trade, you probably do about a dollar worth of good for every dollar spent. But if you spent it on research and development into green energy, so essentially making future green energy cheaper so that not just rich, well-meaning Canadians, but everyone else, and especially the Chinese and the Indians will switch, every dollar spent will avoid about $11 of climate damage. So you can do at least 10 times and more likely about a hundred times more good if you spend your money on research and development rather than just doing the, oh, we got to do something. And the something often is a somewhat silly policy. One more question for you. Do you find that you're being listened to, that um, what you're suggesting and what you found at the Consensus Center, the Copenhagen Consensus Center, is being uh, seriously considered? Because you've been attacked and accused of being willing to let entire nations on coastlines be flooded out of existence. I mean, you sound like an the most eminently reasonable person on this issue to me that I've, I've spoken to, but there are people who attack you regularly. Oh, God, yes. There's lots of people who attack me. I think fundamentally global warming has become this very emotional issue uh, where it's more are you for us or against us rather than are you actually trying to find a solution for the world's big problems. Uh, the Copenhagen Consensus worked with more than 300 of the world's top economists. We worked with seven Nobel laureates. Uh, you know, we have, we have good data behind this. And we're trying to say, where can you do the most good for every dollar you spend? A lot of the people who are really anxious about global warming seem to be more interested in feeling good about what they do rather than actually doing good. And, and you know, I applaud that they want to feel good, but I would like us all to actually spend more time on doing good. Uh, you know, our kids and grandkids are not going to laud us just because we, we spoke really beautifully or because we felt very strongly. They're going to laud us because we fixed problems. Or they won't, if we don't. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, international economist, environmentalist, founder of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, think tank over 300 of the world's top economists, seven Nobel laureates, and yet there are still people who say he doesn't know what he's talking about. On cap and trade and how it's not, after 10 years in existence in the EU, meeting its objectives. Makes sense, doesn't it, when he said that you can't have cap and trade and then give subsidies at the same time. And what happens with uh, with governments is that they initiate these cap-and-trade schemes, and then the industries that are creating too much carbon are supposed to be paying for the, um, for the uh, permits, carbon permits, but then the governments subsidize the industries, because if they don't, the industries will leave. The thing's a... it's a mess. Sammy Wilson, 
Uh, the uh, Environment Minister and Finance Minister, former Environment Minister and Finance Minister for Northern Ireland, was in this, on this program and said, cap-and-trade in his jurisdiction has turned out to be nothing but an absolute total job killer. When we come back, Mark Schultz, president of the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. Um, what do they feel? What do they have to say? And what will Mark say about the Prime Minister of Canada visiting and meeting with and being guest of honor at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C.? That center has absolutely slammed and denigrated the oil sands and slammed and denigrated the idea of pipelines. Stay with us. I'm on Twitter at The Roy Green Show, and listen back anytime to anything that we air at RoyGreenShow.com on the web and the podcasts. You can download as well, like us on Facebook, and it's the first time I've ever heard myself referred to as cuddly. Uh, Justin Trudeau. While the huge drop in the international price of oil is significantly hurting the Canadian economy and our dollar, Kevin O'Leary called it the dollarette, and while the Alberta economy, some say, is cratering with more than 70,000 jobs lost, and with a decision needed on building the Energy East pipeline from the Alberta oil sands to New Brunswick, Canada's Prime Minister during his state visit to the United States, is going to be the guest of honor at two events hosted by the Center for American Progress. It's virulently anti-Alberta oil sands, refers to them as the tar sands and destructive and on its board of directors, we talked about this in the first hour, is billionaire Tom Steyer, president of Next Gen Climate, who was at the forefront of fighting to stop the building of the Keystone XL pipeline. So what is the message that the Prime Minister is sending, not only to Alberta, not only to Canadians, but to international investors? Joining me on the program is Mark Schultz. He's the president of the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. Mark, thank you very much for taking the time. I have to ask you, first of all, how's the oil respect um, uh, effort going? Well, our oil respect campaign, yeah, it's, you know, Roy, it's going over very well. I think what's happening is we're seeing average uh, Canadians, regular Canadians, hardworking men and women of the oil patch and those uh, collectively across the country that support them uh, starting to get the message that uh, we have to have a dialogue of facts and reality about this industry. It's a critically important uh, industry for so many people across the country and government revenues that hire nurses and teachers and build schools and hospitals. Uh, but more importantly, it's a huge, um, uh, I mean, a lot of people depend on it for, for jobs. And so, um, you know, it, it's uh, people are I mean, oh, I, I, I take calls, uh, you know, from across the country Good. saying, hey, we, we support this industry Good. and we, we want to see you succeed. I'm glad to see it. Oilrespect.ca, right? You bet. So check that out, folks. Oilrespect.ca from the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. Explain your realities to us, Mark. What, what's life like? What's business like? What are the prospects like? What are the challenges that you're facing in your profession association well, well I, I mean I would say right now I mean the uh, the reality of the economics of this industry are what they are they are incredibly poor uh, businesses are going bankrupt uh, people are losing their jobs we've seen almost a hundred thousand jobs across the country that have been uh, that have been uh, basically disappeared because of low commodity prices and we recognize that this is a global business 
And we have, uh, I mean, as, as you know, in the oil and gas industry, we're accustomed to the ups and downs of the cycle. But what is relatively new, uh, Roy, is, you know, the, the misinformation and half-truths that are spread from our political leaders, uh, celebrities, foreign celebrities, and environmental radicals that have unfortunately had the upper hand for so long and have started to spread misinformation that I think is needs to be corrected. And, and right now, I mean, it's part of what we're trying to do with oil respect, but uh, we should have been doing this when it was $100 a barrel or, or it's $30 a barrel. The fact is, it's an important industry. And we have to start talking about reality and the facts of this industry. So economics, they are what they are, and it's incredibly unfortunate. But what we need to do as a country is to have an intelligent conversation about many issues that this industry is dealing with. And one of them, as you had pointed out, is market access. So does it, I mean, it's no help to you for the prime minister to be doing what he's doing in, in Washington. Well, I mean, look, I, I think what we're expecting from a, uh, our prime minister and quite frankly, uh, provincial leaders across the country that depend on things like equalization that comes out of uh, heavily from resource-based uh, economies like Alberta and Saskatchewan, British Columbia, to really start sticking up for this industry and start talking about the reality. I mean, Absolutely. one of the things that, you know, is so frustrating is we have a pipeline, uh, the Energy East, we can call it. We also have one couple that we'd like to get uh, built going out west. But let's talk about the Energy East pipeline. We're talking about adding an additional $33.9 billion to the Canadian GDP an extra $7.6 billion in tax revenue to Canada and hiring hundreds of thousands of Canadians who are out of work right now. I mean, this, this economy, Canada is struggling. And, you know, when we talk about the Prime Minister, um, you know, introducing a $10 billion per year stimulus plan, we know, I mean, according to the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association, there is some $68 billion in private money. That's not government, that's private money ready shovel ready projects ready to go and that includes things like energy east so you know it's 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 frustrating i yeah. think our message is starting to get delivered and i think people are starting to wake up and it's, okay mark it's, i'm it's sorry that i have to, to cut have you important conversation sorry to have to cut you off because the clock got us but we're going to continue this conversation with you and we'll stay in touch with you and we'll remind our listeners to go to oilrespect.ca have a look, get involved, and we'll stay in touch with Mark Schultz. It's a critically important component part of our national economy. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Roy. Always good talking to you. We'll come back and wrap things up in just a minute.